Hi, everybody. It's Connie Bowman, host of the weekly podcast, Happy Healthy You, where we talk about living lives that are whole in mind, body, and spirit. Our new sponsor for the podcast is Red Revive, and I have to tell you, I'm enjoying the results I'm getting after adding just a couple of tablespoons to my green smoothie in the morning. I've even gotten my family to try it. For more about Red Revive and 30% off your order, go to our Happy Healthy You Facebook page and click on the Red Revive video at the top left. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Happy Healthy You, the podcast. I'm Connie Bowen, and today we're talking about such an important subject. I love this. We're talking about patient empowerment and patient safety in the hospital setting. And I have a great guest. Pat Rouleau is the author of Speak Up and Stay Alive, and she also hosts a radio show by the same name. Welcome, Pat. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. This is such an important conversation, and we need to shine the light on what we can do to stay safe in hospitals these days. Oh my gosh, I have so many stories, but most recently, <laughs> let me start, my husband had his first colonoscopy. Well, he went in, and it was pretty routine, and you know, he, he the doctor came out and talked to him. Well, weeks go by, and we never get the results, never get the results. Turns out they they must have lost the results. And so the doctor calls and, you know, gives him some kind of a typical answer, you know, come back in 10 years, you're fine, whatever. But there was something unnerving about that. What is going on in our medical system now that we have to, as purchasers of medicine, we have to be so careful? You know, what is going on? How have we gotten to this place, Pat? Wow. And that's a story, the type of story that I hear so very often before we get into that, let me just please encourage you not to let that go. Ask for a copy of the report. You really do need to see it. You might even want to go in and face to face with your doctor and say, "I'd like to review my report. I'd like to. I'd like to look at the images." Yes. And really call them out. Don't just wait ten years. What if they are just kind of covering their their you know what? Right. And and so I hate to be say to be wary, but you really do have to be wary because if they didn't call you right away. Yeah, it just seems like mistakes are happening right and left. And, and you know, I don't want to put the blame anywhere on because doctors are so busy right now. And with all the new, the new paperwork that they're, they're required to keep. I mean, it's just, it's crazy when you go to the doctor, they just don't have time to follow up on a lot of this stuff. And, and so as patients, we really do have to be just so vigilant. Tell us your story, how you became such an advocate for all of us in this regard, and, and you came to write the book. Well, it happened quite by accident, and I mean that literally. My mom was 78 years old, was working at a bridal shop, was carrying a veil from the stockroom to the showroom, and tripped over a two-inch building code violation, a threshold between the two rooms that the city never bothered to fix and that the owner never bothered to uh, correct as well. So one day as she was crossing this threshold carrying a huge veil, she tripped, fell forward, and crushed her shoulder to the point that it needed to be replaced. It couldn't be repaired. So she had a total reverse shoulder replacement. Long story short, while she was prior to surgery, if I'm almost positive at this point in time, was having a heart attack. And um, it went undiagnosed for nine hours. During those nine hours post-op, they kept calling me back into the room saying, well, you your mom now and she just looked horrible she kept telling staff I don't feel good I don't feel good one of them asked where does it hurt she pointed to her chest 
And with that, a, a nurse gave her a shot of her said, which is sedative. And the last thing I heard her say was, I don't, the room went quiet. And three hours later, they raced back out and said, your mom's having a massive heart attack. We have to get her up to the cath lab right away. Mm-hmm. So that was nine hours of being undiagnosed. You don't have to be a medical person to realize that time is muscle when it comes to your heart. You don't have nine hours to wonder what's going on. So they did the coronary artery bypass, put in the stents, did what they could do. The next morning, the heart surgeon came and said, your mom's probably not going to make it. We can do a salvage surgery. What do you think? Well, my mom, what do I think? Let's do whatever we can. So they stopped the right side of her heart, put in a right ventricular assist device, basically an external heart pump for her, which went well. But then meantime, all of her systems failed, and we were now on every piece of life support possible. And we stayed on and off that way in the hospital for the next four months. But what was very, very interesting and kind of a little twist to all of this morning, right after the initial shoulder surgery and the night after the initial heart surgery, a doctor who I did not know found me in the waiting room and and took me by the arm, actually pulled me by the arm into a small conference room and he handed me a manila envelope and he said these words, he said, this stinks and you need to do something about it. (laughs) So with great trepidation, I opened up this envelope and inside were four EKG rhythm strips, you know, the squiggly line. Yeah. Um, Well, again, I'm not a doctor, but I didn't have to be. I looked at this for a moment. In the upper left-hand corner, it said 10.53 a.m., right after my mom got out of shoulder surgery, had her name on it, and right across the top it said, acute myocardial infarction in progress, which means heart attack in progress. And I pulled out the next three at 1.30, 3.30, and again at 4.30, and they all said the same thing. Wow. So clearly somebody just missed this diagnosis. So now I spent the next four months in the hospital with my mom. I knew I couldn't leave her. I stayed with her pretty much around the clock, knowing what happened, but nobody ever told me what happened. And it gave me that interesting perspective that I could now ask questions, watch body language, and just see what was going on, knowing what happened, but folks not knowing that I knew. So there were just I would have to say hundreds of mistakes that happened, wrong medication, overdosed her a couple times, just crazy things happened. She did survive. I brought her home. And about two years later, I felt like I was having post-traumatic stress disorder. I would be having a good day, and these crazy thoughts just kept coming in and out of my mind. And I was questioning, why did this happen to my mom? Why did it happen to our family? And it was one of those defining moments that instead of getting angry and being a bitter person, mm-hmm. I thought I had written books before in the financial services industry. I thought, I know how to write. I know how to speak. I've got to get this out of me. And that prompted me to write the book, which just then led to speaking engagements and led to radio. I had no intention to do any mm-hmm. of this. But apparently this is where I'm supposed to be. Apparently became yeah. your mission. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's important work. I mean, we are in such sort of dire straits with this situation. You have on your website, every year hospital errors claim 450,000 lives. Heart attacks are misdiagnosed 47% of the time, and women are the common victims. Holy yeah. moly. Yeah. <laughs> the, the statistics are quite scary. And know we said right at the beginning of the show that doctors are good people and yes I'm not pointing a finger outward at doctors hospitals or nurses in fact 
you know, it, they saved my mom's life. What's bad is the system. The system isn't working. These, these people are overworked. They're understaffed. Yes. And so I want to point the finger back at us, turn it around and say, you know, as a patient, we can't go in like a lamb to slaughter and say, you do what you want, take care of me. We have to be on top of it. And if you're out of it, that's why you need a patient advocate. You need somebody, a family member, somebody to be around most of the time to be an extra set of eyes, ears, and mouth. Well, that's a good place to start. Let's let's talk about some of the things we can do proactively to keep ourselves safe uh, should we have to go into the hospital and start with the patient advocate. How do we go about finding one and what is a good patient advocate doing for us? That's a really, really good question. Uh, you can get a professional patient advocate and, and we've got resources within the book or, or somebody can call me personally and, and those are folks that have had some kind of medical training. Now, there is no national or any kind of certification for a patient advocate. So basically, anyone could call themselves a patient advocate, get paid, and you really don't know if you're getting what you pay for. So it's kind of buyer beware there. But for most people, I guess the best patient advocate would be their family or a friend. Doesn't necessarily have to have medical experience, but somebody who will be diligent about paying attention if they don't understand something to to do research on the internet to feel free to ask questions and to speak up and and basically be that other person's uh again eyes and and mouth and ears and and act on their behalf and be willing to do that so i think the conversation should be prior is to talk with your family members or friends and say hey if i go or when i go would you, would you be willing to do this for me? Now, one person can't do it all. I know that because I tried. And by the end of four months, I almost lost my mind. So if you want mm-hmm. to maybe mm-hmm. set up, you know, somebody would be in from 12 to 6, another person 6 to 9, or kind of a rotating staff. So it, it really needs to be something that you would coordinate ahead of time and not wait for an emergency. Okay. And, you know, we're all going to be in the hospital at some point in time, either as a patient or as an advocate, so it really behooves us to think about this ahead of time. Well, let's give some specific ideas and using a non-emergency situation. Say say someone is going in for knee surgery or hip replacement surgery. What would I do as a patient, what could I do as a patient advocate from, say, admitting day to their release from the hospital? What would right. be some of the things that I could do? Well, either as the patient or as the advocate, and you do have time, then I would suggest to initially pack a hospital bag, okay. and in that, be sure that you've got you know all of your essentials, and extra underwear, and those kind of things, glasses, and your 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 uh, your health insurance information, a list of your current medications. That's very important. I would always pack a container of sanitizing wipes. Now, typically they have those bleach wipes at the hospital on the, on the counter, but I always brought my own. I would suggest that people bring their own pillow and buy a cheap pillow from the dollar store or something. Don't bring your favorite one that you've had since you're 10 years old <laughs> because there's germs in the hospital and those pillows I found out, they don't, they're in circulation for maybe three or four years. Now, obviously they changed the pillowcases but bacteria can live on fabric for 90 days or longer. So now you've got the zippers and the seams inside the hospital pillows. I don't like to trust those as well. So I say bring your own pillow, and then when you leave, leave your pillow there as a parting gift and say you can 
Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would bring a couple set of footies. Now the hospital again should provide them, but always keep one for the bed and one for the floor. I always see people that have footies on in, in the bed, then they get up to go to the bathroom, walk around the hospital floor, picking up all kinds of germs and bacteria, and then bringing it back in bed with them. That's a no-no. Pack hand sanitizer, something like Purell that has the highest alcohol content. You can get maybe 72%. I used to get it at the dollar store and be cheap. Don't do that. That only has about 60% alcohol. So Purell Advantage is a good one. It has about 72% alcohol. So you might want to pack something like that ahead of time. Okay. Just to be prepared. Um, I never thought of that. That's such a great idea. Yeah, lots yeah. Lots of ideas like that, yeah. Be sure then that whoever is going to be your advocate or the advocate to be there at admission time, that's a critical time. And to plan to have someone there during shift change time. Anytime there's a transfer of, of information or people changing from one shift to another or if you're going to shift from one floor to another or from one facility to another, make sure that that patient is at, advocate is there to make sure that everything transfers correctly. You know, think about the nurse that's been there for 12 hours and she's going to leave and during shift change she's talking about 12 different patients to the oncoming nurse. Something's bound to get missed. She's thinking about getting home and I have to go to the bank and the grocery store. The incoming nurse is thinking about the fight she might just have had with her boyfriend or her kids or whatever. And so you as the advocate can be there for continuity of care. So those are just a few things to think about if you have time to, uh, if you have time prior to a hospital visit. There's a whole lot more, but those are some things you can sure, be Sure, sure. And there's a lot on your website, and I'm sure the rest is in the book. What is the best way, Pat, to get doctors and nurses and other medical professionals like on our team when we go in there? Because I don't know. I whenever I'm in a in an office, say when I took my kids to the doctor, I always sort of sweet talked them a little bit because I wanted them to really care. <laughs> and I don't know if it worked, but is there a way to get them to sort of care about you and and take you know take extra special care with you or your loved one? You are asking the best questions. <laughs> that's that's the classic question. You know how how do we get it to be not us versus them? And, you know, just that whole white coat syndrome kind of thing, you know, where you think you're going to be all empowered, I'm going to say this, and when they walk in with that coat and thrust out the hand that hasn't been washed, all of a sudden you become just, you know, like a, a, a blithering child. Right. You don't, you don't feel like you could say anything. So, yeah, that that is a rough question. But some of the things you can do, I think, is to be educated ahead of time about your symptoms, about what you think is wrong, you know, do that inter- that internet research or whatever. Now, the internet's a crazy place. There's a lot of misinformation, so you have to use that wisely. But I think to go in with a set of questions and not just rely on the fact that you're going to remember. So when they come in, they can't rush you out. You can say, you know what, I've got 14 questions that I want to ask. Now they know you set the stage that they're not leaving until those are answered. You might even want to take notes and write them down and write the answers down or bring somebody with you so that you've got two sets of ears for that. I also, and this sounds really weird, but I saw so many times in the hospital where people just came in that looked like they just cleaned their garage. You know, they just were dirty and dirty shoes and dirty clothes. I think if you want someone to respect you just to, 
you don't have to wear Sunday finest, but just look respectful. Yes. You know, and, and come in and look like you are a business kind of person. And then to be nice and, you know, to say please and to say thank you, though, that goes a very long way. And then if you've got somebody that's just going to be short and sharp with you, because oftentimes they are, somehow to be able to have the ability just to say stop, you know, I have more questions. And, or I'm really scared, I'm really nervous, can you help me? That's always been a really good question for me, to ask in such a way, like, can you please help me? Or can you please help my mom? We really don't understand, and I need more time. And I think if you ask in that kind of a tone, you look respectful, you seem like you're intelligent and empowered, that you're going to get a little bit better service, and, and not just the knee surgery in 306 or, you know the heart attack at 407. You've right. got to stand out as being informed, empowered, and, and um, it's, a, it's a rough question, and it's a rough dance. It really is. Well, you have to use all your charm in this situation, I think, especially, and it's hard because a lot of times as the patient, you may not be feeling your best and pulling out the charm is not always easy. So you brought up the idea of asking the questions and having a list, which I think is great, and also giving your opinion about what you think is wrong. And I think that is a, that is so huge because we as patients know our body, we live in our body. And a lot of times we don't get respect from doctors when we say, well, you know, I went on the web and I looked at this and I really think this is what's going on. And a lot of times they'll look at you and roll your eyes. <laughs> and so standing our ground with that, hope, hoping that they'll listen to us or expecting them to listen to us, I guess. is Absolutely. And you know what? Bottom line, if they don't, then find another doctor. I mean, there is just no reason to deal with somebody who is not going to listen to you. Because you're right, we, you know your body better than this person. And think, I always think about the doctor. The doctor is like the, the, the law of the instrument, you know, where they give, give a boy a hammer and everything looks like a nail. Right. So, if you, if, you know, if you go to a shoulder specialist that practices surgery, yes, that's what they do for a living. That's the only narrow focus. That's all they know. And yes, they're going to want to do surgery. So, yeah, you need a, you need that whole broad look and get that second and third opinion. And, and don't and maybe even outside of the practice. You know, don't go to the same two doctors within the same hospital. Right. I know it's a lot of work, but especially if you've got something pretty threatening or, or life threatening going on, I would suggest. To, not to stick with just one person and get various opinions. Yes, that's really good advice. I'm glad you brought that up. So always second and possibly third opinions. Good, yeah. good. So based on everything that you've learned, if you could go into a medical school and have have your way <laughs> with these up and coming doctors and medical professionals, what would be your focus of concern to them? What would you like for them to know? as they're coming up and moving into this profession? I think that you know, they obviously come out of there with all of the technical skills and, and the knowledge that they need. It's the whole soft side, the people side, the empathy side, where there's really no training. And I'm not even sure that you can train somebody to be empathetic if they're typically not. But to maybe, maybe we could have the graduating students spend a week in the hospital 
and mm. just have them lay in a bed and see what kind of service they get and see what kind of questions or what kind of emotions and feelings that they have and, and maybe look at it from a different perspective. And I say that because I've interviewed so many doctors, high-powered people in the patient safety world, and they have all said the same thing. When either I was a patient laying in the bed looking at my hospital from that perspective, or when my mom or dad was in my hospital, which I thought was the state-of-the-art hospital, and I saw what was going on from the family member's perspective, the patient advocate's perspective, boy, did that change the way I looked at how I was going to behave. So now why wait until 50 years, you know, you've been doing the same thing and treating people poorly. Maybe we really need to put those med students in beds for a week or so. And, and, yeah, uh, what a great, try it real life. what a great idea, Pat. I love that. Sometimes I think empathy is just trained out of them. That intuition, they come in there and they're all, they're ready to be healers. And a lot of them really come to medical school with some some very strong feelings about why they want to go into that field and they want to help. And and then at the end of all that time and they've spent all that money and they, you know, got to pay off that debt. And it's it's a whole different ball game by that time. So sure, it becomes it becomes a business at that point in time. And, and you know, granted, it is. They're it not, is. They're, they're not in this for free, but then also their mentors, you know, a lot of times the mentors are really harsh and sharp people that are very jaded and, you know, shove them around basically. There's nurses that are afraid to speak up to these doctors Mm. and so, you know, maybe their hands get to be tied a little bit because they're frightened and there's job security to worry about. So I also think that staff in the hospital need to feel free to call out the bully. Yes, I agree. I agree. And I think that's happening more and more. Uh, I was just listening to this audio book, The Power of Habit. Oh my gosh, I keep talking about it because I love it. And they talk about Rhode Island Hospital, how they had a nurse that called out a doctor and the doctor flipped and embarrassed her in front of everybody. And they ended up operating on the wrong side of this patient's brain and the patient died. And so caused a whole upheaval in the hospital, obviously. and, And they changed a lot of policies because of that. And now nurses are allowed to call out a doctor who's being a bully or possibly is not being mindful of the patient's rights or acting in an unprofessional way on the job. And that's a really good point. So for more information to get your book, Speak Up and Stay Alive, to listen to your wonderful radio show, where can we find more information? Well, thank you for asking. Yes, the website is speakupandstayalive.com, speakupandstayalive.com. And on there, the book is available. We've got patient safety logs, just a host of interesting things that can keep you safe during a healthcare or hospital encounter. And then we also archive all of our shows going back several years. So you can just spend the day and click on and, and, and listen. And uh, yeah, I encourage folks to do that and become acquainted with some of the things that they can do to stay safe and bring the book to the hospital, lay it on the tray table. It's really a good visual where you don't have to, you don't have to say a word. I've had people do that and say they've got the best care ever because it's got kind of an in-your-face cover. It sure does, yeah. Conversation, you know? Yeah. That's the key. If you start a conversation with your provider, that's, that's the big way to stand out. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Speak up and stay alive. It does speak for itself. <laughs> Definitely has a title that stands out. Yeah. So thank you so much, Pat. I'm looking forward to reading the book and, and staying on top of this because a lot of us have parents who are aging and 
and we need to take care of each other. So thank you so much for this good work that you're doing and for helping me shine the light on this to my audience. Well, and you as well. What a pleasure to be on your program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.